0: You're listening to the Theology Mom Podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening and happy Monday to you. I want to welcome you to the live stream tonight. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And I want to thank you for joining me. And I'm going to be talking about a very important topic tonight, and that is the topic of work and talking about kind of developing a theology of work, if you will, and thinking about work from a distinctly Christian point of view. And my hope is to go over some very important scriptures tonight in this teaching and also to field your questions. So, you know, sometimes I hear people asking the question about what is God's will for my life? And in fact, I've been thinking a lot about that lately during the quarantine. Um, And maybe I'll develop that topic as a future live stream if people have interest in that. But today I want to talk about one of the things that is God's will for our lives. And that is the topic of work. And uh, I think there's some uh things happening right now in our culture that are kind of an assault on God's will for us to work and many in Christians are they kind of can inadvertently get influenced by the culture and engage in worldly ways of thinking about work and sometimes we just inadvertently we don't mean to but, We sometimes allow our thoughts to be more shaped by our culture than the Bible when we think about work. So if we're going to live a holy life, if we're going to live a life for the Lord, we need to include some discussion about a theology of work, because work takes up a significant part of our day and our time. And how do we think about that as Christians? So I think this is a very timely discussion because we're living in a cultural moment right now that is very challenging in many respects when it comes to work. It's very confusing. And we're watching our lawmakers struggle with what to do. And unemployment rates uh, were very low. Uh, Some uh, unemployment rates in certain demographics were at a uh, low like lowest they've been in 30, 40, 50 years. Um, unfortunately, in the last five to six weeks, unemployment rates are now skyrocketing because of recent events and the government's decision to shut down huge areas of our economy. Uh, and so, for example, this is just one article of many that you could go look up, but this is one from the CNBC, the Uh, NBC's business website about the impact of the virus is having on our economy. But what I really want to draw your attention to is something that I haven't heard a lot about. And that is this headline of the lowest level of wage earners and that the virus is hitting them the hardest because many of the businesses that are shut down are um, operated by people that we might classify as the working poor, people who live paycheck to paycheck, and they really uh, rely on their place of employment to feed their families on a daily basis. And uh, the the damage that's happened because of the shutdown uh, could have some long-term impact. I'm reading about unemployment rates that are at least 20% nationally, approaching 24%, um, and in some sectors, much higher. So we are a a country right now in a world globally that is struggling to figure out uh, what is happening in the sector of work. Now, at the same time, in our own government, in our own country, uh, they have enacted huge Uh, entitlement programs. We've gone deeper into debt uh, in in the effort to help people. And here's a great case in point of the conundrum that's been created. Again, this is from the CNBC website. This gal owns a business and she uh, got one of the forgivable loans from the uh, Paycheck Protection Plan that was passed by the federal government. And to help keep her business open so she could meet her payroll. But at the same time, the government passed the the PPP program for small business owners. Um, They also passed uh, an entitlement program for employees to earn a certain amount of money. And I think the amount is like $600 a week or something. And then they get an extra amount on top of that. Well, as it turns out, many small business owners like this gal, her employees are not happy. Uh, They don't they don't want to come back to work because they're actually getting paid more to not work by the government. So here the, the government in its attempt to help has created this double bind for many small business owners where they've given a forgivable loan if the small business owner uh, uses the money to uh, not fire their employees and uh, bring their employees back and and give them employment. But at the same time, they've passed and given money to the employees that is is a level higher than than what is being paid. And so this is creating all kinds of problems uh, and and making a hard situation even harder because although the short term might help the employee, the long-term sustainability is going to be really hard to keep those small businesses open. In fact, I just got an email just a few days ago from a local business here that's owned by a Christian family. It's a party business and um, they're having to close their doors permanently because they can't make the payroll in the long-term because they don't know when this whole situation is going to end. And so they just had to make a decision because their their lease money is due, their rent, their monthly rent is due. And they're like, we can't do this and not keep having an income. And that's just a family. And now think of all of those people that are out of work as well. And, and so we're we're in a mess. <laughs> we are in a mess. And I want to kind of bring some biblical wisdom to bear on some of these situations because I think that some of the mess that we're in is because we are doing what is right in our own eyes. Um, we are making a hard situation harder uh, because we don't know God's instructions. And so I want to help Christians begin to access the ancient wisdom of scripture on how we can think about work. And, and maybe if we were to read the Bible and, and apply God's laws a little more to these kinds of situations. And maybe we can get some insights as we go along about parenting and the local church and what we can be doing as Christians. Maybe we'll help put ourselves, our, our bodies and our souls in a much better position. So, um, you know, I, I, the way I kind of think about this, our family really enjoys the TV show Survivor. And I don't know if you've ever seen this show, but uh, there's often scenes in the be- near the beginning of the season where they're trying to start a fire without any matches or flint. They're just rubbing two st- sticks together. They're really working at it. They're really sweating and huffing and puffing. And they're trying to make this fire, but they don't have quite the right tools to make the fire easily. And that's a little bit of what I feel like we're we're going through right now in our culture when it comes to work is we're working really, really hard, but we're not necessarily using the tools that, that God has given us, the, the biblical wisdom to help run our lives the way that God designed it. Um, because you see, I think that God is the creator of everything. And so if we follow his design, uh, it goes a lot easier for us. We don't have to be over here rubbing two sticks together with all of our might. We can use the tools and the biblical wisdom that he's given us. So we're going to talk about God's design as it pertains to work. So maybe our lives will go a little bit better for us. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about God's design as it pertains to our work. Number one, and that is the reality that humans are designed to work. Work is what we were created for. It is part of God's good design. And in fact, it is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. When God created human beings, he said at our most foundational level, we are created in his image to multiply and fill the earth. And then in Genesis chapter two, God takes the man and he places him in the garden and he tells him to work it and take care of it. And this is fundamental to what it means to be a human person, is to work. Part of our dignity as human beings is to work. Unemployment and a lack of work is not just a financial problem. It's not just a physical problem. It also has a spiritual component. And it's very sobering to me to think about so many people losing opportunities to experience this very crucial aspect of God's design for them, um, that it's a critical part of what it means to be a human person is to work. And they're not being able to do that right now. Um, So when we think about work, we need to know that work is, is part of our design. It's not part of the fall. Working is natural, It is the way that we were designed to function, okay? And so this is a very important foundational component of building a theology of work according to the Christian worldview. Number two, the fall complicates our work. It makes our work much harder. Things are not the way that they are supposed to be. God designed the creation a certain way, but it doesn't work that way. It is hard. It is difficult. Now, why is that? It's because Adam and Eve fell into sin. In fact, in Genesis chapter three, it says this to Adam or the man. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken for dust, you are and dust, you will return. This is a very foundational passage to understand and meditate on when it comes to work. Because of the fall, work has become harder it involves increased toil, increased sweat, and there's complications. Uh, there's things that hinder us. There's obstacles. In in modern terms, we might say everything is not as it should be. Our work is has become cursed. Now our work becomes stress and overtime and belligerent bosses and sitting through mundane meetings. This is the picture of how many of us experience work now as a result of the fall. So when we think about points number one and two, it's very important to keep both of these points in mind at all times. Simultaneously, we have to keep in our minds that The goodness of work in God's original creation, work is still good, but there is a struggle to work after the fall. Both of these things are true. Work is still part of our design as humans, but it's become harder. It's become more complicated. Work is not all good and work is not all bad. Work is part of God's good creation but it's been tainted by the fall and God is now at work to redeem our work. And we're going to get more into that a little later in the teaching. So if we only see the good, if we only see work as good, we'll be frustrated when things don't go as they should. We'll be frustrated that when our boss is difficult and belligerent, it's because we don't have proper expectations. We're not accounting for the fall, but if we only see the bad, We'll have a hard time doing our work uh, to the glory of God because, you know, everything will just look bad. And what we have to remember, oh, yeah, I was really created for work. That's what I was designed to do when I'm doing my work and it brings me fulfillment and joy. That's when I'm really expressing the glory of God. As we're thinking about these two points and how to keep them in balance, there's a few practical questions that I would like us to consider. The first one is what attitudes do our children pick up on based on our comments about work? And this is just kind of a a check even on on myself because, you know, you come home and you're tired and you're sitting at dinner. You know, what attitudes do we portray to our children about our work based on our comments about work? It's a very um, powerful thing to think about. Another question is, what are we teaching our children about the nature and importance of work for their dignity? How are we teaching them to think about their own dignity and the, the relevance of work for them? Um, what public policies are we supporting that undermine the human design to work? Do we have public policies in place that actually undermine God's supernatural design? If we want human flourishing, if we want people to, to flourish as human beings and live strong, healthy lives, uh, not just physically healthy, but also healthy in our soul and our spirit, we need to reflect on, on our work and, and what that looks like. So those are just some, some things to think about as we're progressing through the teaching. Now let's talk about the principle number three of sowing and reaping. The principle of sowing and reaping is part of how God has set up the universe. This is a very important point because if we're going to function the way that God designed us to function, we have to think about the principle of sowing and reaping in Proverbs chapter 20, It says this, and again, we're going to the wisdom of the Proverbs. If you, just like last week and and talking about prosperity, if you want to know wisdom from the Bible, go to the book of Proverbs. It says, sluggards do not plow in season. In other words, lazy people do not plow in season. So at harvest time, they look, but they find nothing. If we're going to understand God's world, and if we're going to function the way he designed us to function, we're going to have to reflect deeply about sowing and reaping. Proverbs chapter 13 says this, a sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. And both of these principles call our attention to a farming analogy. And most of us aren't farmers, but we might recast these Proverbs in modern terms by saying, don't expect a paycheck if you didn't do the work. That's kind of sowing and reaping for today. If we're going to expect some money in our bank account, we're going to have to do the work to get it there. Work is also the expected norm. Uh, And we will discuss some potential exceptions to that later in the teaching. But work is the accepted norm. Laziness is, is out of step with our design and with God's plan of holiness for us, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's some great instruction from the Apostle Paul. He says, Make it your ambition, in other words, make it your goal, your life goal right now, to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. This is very important because the Apostle does not want us to be known as busybodies and gossips and lazy people. He wants us to build a reputation in the world that even if people don't like our religion, they respect our work ethic. They don't see us as stealing from our bosses, stealing time, being on social media. They see us as having a solid work ethic. So when they reflect about you, they, they might not agree with your religion. They might not agree with the way that you worship, but they will respect you. That person works hard. That's that's. Paul's in instruction. The book of 2 Thessalonians also has a very interesting comment about work from the Apostle Paul. He says, for when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. <laughs> in other words, they're very busy gossiping and, and talking about things and wasting time. Now, to be sure, I want to put this verse into some historical context. This verse applies specifically to people who can work and or otherwise contribute to society, but they don't. For whatever reason, they just choose not to work. They don't work. It's a warning not to allow yourself to be taken advantage. Don't let your Christian charity and your desire to help others be overtaken by people who just simply don't want to work. And again, we're going to talk about some exceptions to the work principle at the end of the video. But for those people that we encounter, we, we don't want to uh, be taken advantage of. And we see similar wisdom in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 21. It says this, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse To work. That's a really good echo of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians. Christians need to be careful about people who are always asking us for money unless they are willing to do the work. A couple of practical examples. My grandfather, who was a church planter, he often was building, had building programs. He was either building a house or building a church. And he he, uh, when he lived in Reseda here in Southern California, he lived near the railroad tracks and people would come by often and knock on his door at the back of his house door and they would want food because they knew that he was a pastor and, and he was building a church there and they wanted food. And he would say, sure, I'll be happy to feed you. I have a ditch over here or I have I need help with this part of my building project, come help me work for two hours and then I'll, I'll make you some food. And he, he, he would say that, you know, a good percentage of the time, not all the time, but a good percentage of the time, uh, the person was either unwilling to work or they left the work they didn't finish. And so my grandfather was attaching work with the food and and the help. And I think that that is a biblical idea and it wasn't that he was heartless it's that my in my grandfather's mind he was trying to follow the biblical wisdom of the scriptures to um, connect work with help another example I've been in a couple of situations to be able to offer scholarships to people for various things uh, because there was a financial need but I always require the person to pay at least part of the tuition that's necessary to to show some effort and sometimes they have to get their hustle on and and do some things to work uh to maybe sell something or to do something in order to have some skin in the game but that i think is following uh in the line or in the spirit of the biblical injunction to work if someone is willing to work then that's great we should help them but we need to be careful about attaching work and help to each other for the long term. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions sometimes in an emergency and that sort of thing. And that's not what I'm talking about, but as a lifestyle. You know, another thing about work is that work helps uh, sustain a family. It makes family sustainability possible. Um, So we want to encourage people to work. Again, that's the norm And a stable family life is correlated with things like academic success in children, thriving and flourishing in children, and also flourishing communities. So we really want to encourage people to work and think about how we are bringing that value to our children. Another very important point is that um, in Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul talks about how work helps us to actually avoid sin it 's almost like a, an important antidote to sin. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So we do want to take care of those in need. We do want to share our resources, but we do that through work and so this is this is very, very important concept and work is not just some ancillary thing to scripture. There is so much scripture about work. So when we think about work, there's kind of the, the opposite of work. And we've, we've, we've briefly kind of alluded to that. And that is people who aren't diligent. They don't work hard. They're the sluggard. They're the foolish ones. Um, And I thought that was interesting in Psalm 109. There's a very interesting psalm and the psalmist is kind of calling down a curse on his enemies. And he says, appoint someone evil to appoint, to oppose my enemy. His prayer to the Lord is for the destruction of his enemy. And he says, even his own prayers condemn him. May his days be few. In other words, shorten his life. Um, May someone take his place of leadership. May may he be fatherless. May his wife be a widow. Uh, This is a very severe prayer. But I think it's interesting that part of the curse is that his children will be wandering beggars. They would be driven from their ruined homes, that a creditor would seize all he has and strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. I mean, notice how much financial ruin is part of his curse here. Like. Being in debt and being a wandering beggar is sort of how we're perceived in scripture. That's how the fool lives. The fool depicted in the wisdom literature is someone who's in debt and has a ruined home and and these sort of things. And so if we're going to talk about prosperity from God's standpoint, it's somebody who's living carefully and wisely according to God's principles. And a big component of that is work. So now let's pause for a minute and talk about some practical applications here to this principle. A thought is for pastors. What are you doing to properly vet people when you offer financial assistance to them? Can they work? What are you requiring them to do when a needy person comes to the church Pastors, what kind of questions are you asking? Are you building independence or dependence in that person in the long term? Here's a parenting question. Are we requiring our children our children to work? Chores are a big part. There's so much research about chores and how children who do chores around the house grow up to be healthier, emotionally healthier, and more responsible. Are you requiring your children to contribute around the house? What about the idea of a teenager job, a summer job? That's a big thing that has kind of gone by the wayside. Young people are so capable. But what are we doing to raise the level of expectations, raise the bar, if you will, in helping them to go to deeper places in their soul? Work isn't just a physical thing. It doesn't merely bring in money. It also builds our soul. It helps make us a stronger person. It gives us an arena to practice holiness. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Another parenting question is, are we attaching money and work together in our children's minds? Or are we just giving them money? How are we subtly conditioning them? Even when our children were small, we had them recycle bottles and cans. They even recruited their grandparents for a season into saving their bottles and cans. And even when our children were like three, four years old, taking them to the recycling center, showing them how to sort the bottles and cans and getting that little spending money. But helping them make the connection in the neural pathway in their brain that work and money go together. Sowing and reaping is uh part of how God has set up the universe. Number four, Christians should work as if Jesus is their boss. This is a very important issue. Christians don't just work for human masters. We work for the Lord. It says in Colossians chapter three, starting at verse 22, it says, slaves obey your earthly masters and everything. We might put that in a modern context of saying, You know, workers obey your boss in everything and do it not only when their eye is upon you. In other words, not just when they're looking, not just when you're worried about getting caught, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, your level of integrity happens when your boss is not looking. You know, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your human master, not for your human boss, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. This is a very important verse because so often we think, well, yeah, it's easy to obey my boss if he's a good guy. If he's a nice guy. But what about if he's a jerk? <laughs> You know, does that get me off the hook? Well, not really. <laughs> when we look at first Peter chapter two, it says household servants be subject to their masters with all respect, not only to the good and the kind. In other words, not just if you're, if your master or your boss is good or a, a kind person, but notice this word, but also to the unjust boy, is that a hard thing to think about. And in this word unjust, scalios, it means a crooked, torturous, perverse, wicked boss. For this is what is commendable, if because conscience toward God someone endures pain while suffering unjustly, for what praise is there if you do wrong and are beaten for it and you endure it? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and endure it, this is commendable in God's sight. In other words, if, if your boss is good and you obey him, what, what, what is the, the credit to you in that? But if your boss is wicked and you still treat him as if you were working for the Lord, this is what we have to really meditate on. It says in verse 21, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. So if you want to be like Jesus... You're going to have to learn how to act in a way toward a crooked boss as if you are working for the Lord. That is a very hard teaching and it goes against worldly wisdom. The world programs us that we will be kind to the kind and we will be kind of snarky and gossipy to wicked people. But what scripture says in the example that Jesus leads us with is he says that we ought to act in a holy way, even toward our bosses who are unjust. This is a very hard teaching. Now, why does the Lord want us to do that? It's because our love for others becomes an evidence that that there is a God and that, that we have been redeemed and we see our need for forgiveness. And so we want to extend that to others with the hope that it is through our kindness that God will work and bring that person to repentance. But boy, that is so counterintuitive to how we are programmed to think. Now, a question we might ask here is, well, what if my boss is abusive? You know, one of the, the great blessings of living in a free society is the beauty of free will relationships, we have the privilege in our country and this is not true in all countries but in our country we have what's called free will employment we enter into a free will contract with our employers they extend an offer of i will pay you this much and we can say yes or no and once we say yes we are entering into a free will contract in my state we have at will employment and that employer can end that contract at any time And I can leave my employer at any time. And that is one of the great blessings of living in our country in a free society. We are not indentured servants. Our employers do not own us. It is a wonderful privilege that we live in a moment in history that even today, many parts of the world do not live this way. They do not have these rules, but it is a great privilege that we have. And so If you're in a job where you are experiencing an abusive boss, and it is hard, you know, I've worked in abusive work environments. It can be draining. It can be difficult, but we're called to still treat our boss with respect while we're there, while we're employed, we're going to work hard. We're not going to steal. We're going to do our best, but we have the option of going and finding another job. We can leave that place of employment. And so, yes, it is difficult. It is draining because remember, The fall is still in play. Work is good. God created work to be good, but people are evil. So abusive work environments do happen. We shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't catch us off guard that there are uh, abusive work environments. And we are very grateful to live in a free country where we have the ability to change relationships So if you're a Christian, you have the added benefit of asking the Lord for wisdom to know when you need to make those changes and asking him for a provision so that you can leave those abusive relationships. But remember, while you're employed, be respectful. Treat your boss as you're working as if Jesus is your boss, even if he's difficult. Okay, number five, all honest work is virtuous. This is a very important point. During the medieval period, it came to be the view that priests and monks were seen as, as having the righteous work. They were doing the real work, the important work. And one of the features of the Reformation, and you could look this up historically, was the recovery of the the idea of the dignity of the worker, the, the dignity of work, and, and that that is part of what it means to be a human person. So whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, your work has dignity. And being a pastor is not more spiritual or religious than being a blue-collar worker. This is a very important point that I want you to know today, that your work matters. And in fact, Pope John Paul II, who was the pope a few popes ago, and he was a pope for a few decades, and he wrote a, a, actually a people encyclical about the dignity of work. It's called Laborum Exerens, and um, I just wanted to share this one little quote from that document, and I think it's, it's very interesting. The pope says, Through work, man must earn his daily bread and contribute to the continual advance of science and technology. And above all, to elevating unceasingly the cultural and moral level of society within which he lives in community with those who belong to the same family. And what the Pope is saying here is that, in other words, work is more than simply a means of providing for material needs, although it is that, and it it does offer stability to the family and the community work also has a spiritual and soulish component to it. It's it's a means of facilitating the cultural and moral aspects of human flourishing. Work as a human activity contributes to the common good of the community and of the wider country. And so when we reflect on work, it, it is truly an important thing. It is, it is not just merely a job. It's It's part of a larger conversation and a larger construct that God has set up. It's a very beautiful thing. If you want to read more about this, there was a recent blog post this week, and this is kind of what inspired this whole live stream on the the Acton Institute blog. And if you don't follow the Acton Institute, I want to highly commend their work. If you want to dig deeper into a theology of work and economics and, and that sort of thing, But go to this article on COVID-19 reminds us of the humanizing aspect of work. It was a very wonderful blog post that digs a little deeper into that, uh, the papal encyclical. And you might enjoy that, just a deeper dive into that and some of those themes that I'm talking about. Another very important aspect of work is that it is a way of loving our neighbor. And I don't think many people have reflected deeply on this. But when I say that all honest work is virtuous um, and that being a pastor is not more spiritual than being a blue collar worker, what I want you to think about is that work is a way of loving your neighbor. It truly is. And I want to thank my husband's uncle who has now gone on to his reward in heaven. But he and I used to enjoy many great theological conversations. He was a lay minister in the Vineyard Church and he was the one who who first kind of brought my attention to this principle and I've reflected on it over the years and and I just want to kind of give a shout out to my my husband's uncle John for for that and and his reflections on this. And it I want to use a few just very concrete examples. Recently I went through a drive-through at a nearby fast food establishment. Obviously this was before the quarantine. And I ordered a drink. And when the young guy at the window was getting ready to give me the drink, he spilled some of the soda on the outside of the cup. And he says, oh, wait, let me wipe that down for you. So rather than just not caring and just giving me a big wet cup with soda all over the sides of it, he took the cup back, he wiped it off, and then he gave it to me and served me and it just immediately struck me how he treated me the way that he would want to be treated. It says in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus' words here, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So even a type of a job that our society looks at as being mundane, you know, it's just kind of a a, a low blue-collar worker, a teenager job working in fast food. It has dignity because you can think about it as how do I love my neighbor through this job? I'm providing a service. I'm providing food. I will treat their food the way I would want a, a food worker to treat my food. And we treat them with kindness when they come to the window. And we we help maybe cheer them when the, we can tell the customers had a difficult day. And likewise, if you see your server uh, having a difficult day, maybe you give them a word of encouragement but working no matter what it is if it's honest work it is a way of loving our neighbor another example is uh my husband's service of doing the dishes so frequently in our home uh, he's such a servant leader and i'm reminded of jesus's call in john chapter 13 for us to follow in his example that as he washed the feet of his disciples He called us. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. No servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent me. If we want to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi, if we want to be like Jesus, we will want to serve those around us. So even a household chore, like doing the dishes, something that we might consider mundane is an act of love and service. It is, it is a way that we love our neighbor. Now you'll notice that I'm not using, I I was very careful in how I worded. I said, honest work. I'm not talking about dishonest work. I'm not talking about the mafia or work that exploits people that breaks other commandments, other laws. And I'm not talking about that. But if we're providing a genuine service to people and we're engaging in honest work, this brings honor and glory to God. Okay, number six, Christians ought to use their work to bring everything in creation under the authority and reign of Christ. Work should ultimately bring glory to God. Our work has great spiritual significance because it is a chance for God to be glorified. First Corinthians chapter 10 says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So when you show up in your workplace, you want to go there with a mindset of like, I'm going to work as if, if Jesus is my boss and I'm going to work to give glory to God in all that I do. Colossians chapter three says a very similar thing. He says, whatever you do, whether in word, in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the father through him. And notice the work isn't just about being a pastor. That's not just the holy work. It's whatever you do in your work. Again, whether you're a butcher, baker, a candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. And my friend Cynthia's uh, case, she's an accountant. You can love your neighbor through your work. And in doing so, you are disciplining your mind for work in the new creation. And through us, God is acting and Redeeming creation itself God uh, grace and our salvation doesn't just change our eternal destiny, it should change our whole worldview our entire basis for living becomes different when we know Christ. Um, it becomes the grid through which we see the world. Redemption should affect just every part of our life it's just just a, a ticket into heaven it it should change us from the inside out, and then we extend god's redemption to creation. It says in Romans chapter eight, where the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, God has allowed his creation to be subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, the the creation has been under a curse. It has been groaning, not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is kind of living in us, and we are the first fruits of the new creation when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we're waiting for it patiently. So the creation is groaning and we're waiting for that redemption with the creation. But as we wait, we're seeing that something about Jesus's death has an impact, not just for us, not just on our souls, but for all of creation. First Corinthians 15 says this that Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that it doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him and put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. The big goal in all of this is to bring the creation and everything in the creation under the rule and reign of Jesus. And Jesus is under the father so that God is just over all and in all and through all and all of it. And so we get to partner with the Lord in this. We get to help in that process of bringing all things into subjection under Christ that's one of the things I love about technology. You know, technology is such a, it can be such a two-edged sword. You know, it, it can harm people. The internet can u- be used to, to harm people. It can be used to, uh, in sex trafficking and porn and horrible deeds of darkness. But the internet can also be used for the Great Commission and bringing the gospel in places that missionaries could never reach before. One of the reasons I love using technology, I love using live stream and zoom and teaching classes on zoom and doing small groups and using Facebook and all of these things, even though there's a lot of corruption there as a result of the fall, I want to be part of bringing all things under this, the subjection of Jesus that he would reign over everything and that I am participating in that with him. And so even in my work that I do, I try to be really intentional. How can I bring this area under the subjection of Jesus? How can I bring Jesus glory in this area? Even where there's darkness, what can I do now? As we wrap up here, I want to address a couple of very common questions that I get whenever I speak and teach on this. What about retirement? Retired people don't work. What about their dignity? Do they lose dignity if they're not working? You know, one of my favorite verses related to the topic of retirement is Proverbs chapter 13. It says this, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. This is a very important verse for us to reflect on in God's wisdom And we talked a lot about it on the live stream last week of God's plans for our prosperity. But the context here is to leave a a legacy for our children um, that we will bless our children, and our grandchildren by what we leave. And so retirement can be, can be part of that legacy. I know that that has been true in my life um, through the legacy of my mother and my grandparents. And so God's ideal, not the fool, but the wise man He works hard and he builds wealth so that he won't be a burden to his children. He plans ahead and he stores for the future. It says in Proverbs chapter six, go to the ant, you sluggard. He's, He's encouraging us to look at creation, consider its ways and be wise. If you want to know how, where wisdom comes from, you can observe it in creation. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Now, there's nobody tells the ant what to do. It just knows I need to store up for the future. So don't just wait for your boss or somebody else at authority to tell you what to do. Um, scripture tells us plan for the future. Food won't be around in the winter. Ants have to go gather it um, beforehand. So they have to plan. And we want to be like them. Scripture calls us to observe how the ant works and that we ought to be like that. So we're going to put aside money for later. So if we want to set aside money for retirement, that's just enjoying the fruits of our labor. That's not laziness. That's not not working. We worked, we stored things up, and now we're resting. And so, you know, you want to start early, but we want to think about that. And, And the assumption in Jewish culture was that children would care for their parents in their own age. You know, there wasn't this concept of of uh, working a certain number of years and then uh, having government checks and retirement. That's kind of a little anachronistic to scripture. That's not how scripture thinks about things. And this was one of the vulnerabilities of women and and widows and women who uh, whose husbands abandoned them um, because basically there would be no old age care, especially if they didn't have children. That's one of the reasons why barrenness was such a a horrible prospect for a a man and a woman because there would be no children to care for them in their old age. Um, So this is one of the reasons that our churches, that we Christians need to kind of look around and, and look out for widows and orphans today. Uh, We don't want to just tell them merely to depend on the government. We want to do things God's way. So we want to invest in people and invest in relationships and, and help them and, and investing in older people Um, and so, you know, as we're doing that, we want to take care of people, but being retired is not lazy. It's, it's, it's often people just enjoying the fruits of their labor. But if there are needs, we as Christians, we want to look around for people in their old age and help to take care of them. Now, a second question that I get a lot when I teach on this is what about the disabled or the severely mentally ill? This is a very important question us to think about. We don't want to fall into the error that everyone on public assistance is lazy. That, that's wrong. We don't want to think about it that way because it's just not true. We also don't want to fall into the, the error of thinking that everybody on public ass- assistance is unwilling to work. That's also not true. But we also don't want to fall into the error that those who can't work don't have dignity. Dignity is inherent to us as human beings persons. Now, those who can work should work, and we don't want to undermine that. But those who legitimately can't work, that's not a reason to just throw them away. We don't throw people aside simply because they can't work. We don't have a a functional view of people's dignity. We don't base their dignity dignity on their functionality. We base it on the fact that they are human persons. And so we take care of them. Uh, That's really the short answer to the disabled question. We help them. Maybe we help them find what options are available. Maybe they can't do paid work, but maybe they could do part-time work or volunteer work around the church. Maybe there are some jobs that a disabled person could do. Maybe they could volunteer for something in their community or in their church. Even some mentally disabled people have jobs in sheltered work environments, and that brings them dignity. So it's important to at least ask the question, well, what could the person do? Okay. And we can also ask, what can we do to help caregivers of disabled people? How can we share our resources with them voluntarily in the church? But God wants us to share. He wants us to help. Could we maybe help as a church or a group of churches, help sponsor a group home to care for the disabled or the mentally disabled in in our churches? Could we help sponsor food banks to help people with their basic needs? Could churches maybe help sponsor the purchase of medical devices or equipment? Have we even looked around in our local churches to see who might be in need of help with medical devices? These are just a few ideas, but I think this is a worthwhile question for our leaders and our pastors in our community to be asking. But it's really become hard and complicated because, as we said at the top of the teaching, the government has come in, and I think they've largely conditioned us to think, well, that's their job. That's the government's job to take care of the poor. But really, it's not. If we are going to be God's people, we should be thinking about the poor in our churches and how can we care for them first and, and, and thinking about their dignity and what they can do for work. We want to be generous with them. We want to share our resources with them, but do it in a spirit of love and that creates independence, not merely dependence. I hope this has been helpful to you. I really hope that you've benefited from just thinking about the topic of work and that maybe you'll share some of these ideas with your children, that you'll engage in some conversations and begin to be intentional and thinking about how you can teach your children about the importance of work because It is truly part of our design. And if we are going to flourish according to God's will, if we're going to live the way he wants us to live, we need to reflect deeply about our theology of work. So much more could be said. This is just a thumbnail to get the conversation going, but I do hope that you have found this teaching helpful. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.